Well, for a number of weeks, we have been considering the challenge of living in a world where the laws of man often collide head-on with the law of God. That should have been very evident just in our scripture reading, wasn't it? We, we read of Moses' parents and how they, they were not afraid of the king's edict. We read of Moses himself who did not fear the rage of the king. We read about Rahab and we read about all these others who faced great trials, many of them at the hands of both civil and ecclesiastical authorities. This is not an easy world to live in. It's not an easy world to live out your faith and to live it courageously. We've seen in Acts chapter 4 and 5 that Peter and the apostles specifically were commanded not to preach any longer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they defied that commandment over and over and over again. Truth be told, we haven't known much of this kind of thing in the United States of America, but the winds of change are blowing, and I haven't worked through all the details of these events, but I'm amazed week by week the number of things that come across my path just hearing recently about a a teenager from Montana who'd been flirting with transgenderism and her Christian parents did not affirm and uh, welcome her, her, her struggle in a way that would anyway encourage her in that direction. And it sounds to me like she's been removed from that home and now apparently even her parents are facing the potential of jail uh, for the fact that they spoke up about this this having their daughter removed. It's unthinkable to us who have parents, uh, who have children, I should say. I read also of 11 people who were charged with uh, for peaceably blocking access to an abortion clinic, uh, facing upwards uh, something of 11 years in jail. And this, of course, and is, a, is, is in a day when, when people can, in mass, block the, the Bay Bridge or other public thoroughfares and call for climate awareness or a Gaza ceasefire. And those folks, at least to this point, have only been charged with disorderly conduct. Beloved, a day is coming, I think, and I sense that you sense it too, when faithfulness to Christ will mean that we need to disobey the governing authorities. How long will it be before the church is required by law to hire homosexuals or transgender people in the name of equity and inclusion? How long will it be until preaching the whole counsel of God will land you in jail for hate speech? How long until it's considered a crime to speak publicly about your faith in Christ? I wonder if the day will come when churches will be able to be attacked as they are, I know, in Africa, and the state does nothing about it. 
I wonder how long it will be until the, sh the doors of the church are shuttered by the state. Again, these things are hard for us to imagine, but in many countries around the world, these things are already taking place. I went to India not too long ago, and it was a strange deal to go into a country to proclaim Christ, knowing that that proclamation uh, was against the law. How long till we as Christians are told that we can no longer educate our children according to our conscience or until we are told that we may not discipline our children according to the biblical mandate. It seems unimaginable really in this country and under this constitution, but history teaches us that things can change very, very quickly. So we have been trying to think through these things in advance. We sort of used, you know, Acts 4 and 5 as a springboard to talk about uh, the church's relationship with the governing authorities. And I think that thinking through these things in the early stages will be helpful to us to be forewarned, is to be forearmed, and we need to be prepared. We should be thinking about it and not naively simply going down the path, assuming that things will be uh, as friendly and as, as easy as it has been for us over the years. We talked a little bit about authority generally. We made these points that all authority in the universe belongs to God himself. It originates with him. Everything in the heavens and in the earth, everything belongs to him and therefore he has right over it all. All human authority is delegated authority. It comes from God. It remains God's even when he's delegated it. And therefore, every human, accountability, every human authority is accountable to God. And we mentioned that all accountable or all delegated authority then is limited. Then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the Christian and civil government from Romans 13, 1 to 7 and 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. We saw that we're commanded by God to submit ourselves to the authorities which are over us and that includes civil authority. We're to pay our taxes, to support the government as God's servant. We're to hold the civil authorities in high regard. We're to fear them, to reverence them, to honor them as we do Christ himself. And it's unto Christ that we honor the governing authorities. Authority is God's idea and it's good. And we must do these things, Paul says, because every authority is delegated from God and established by God, and to resist civil authority is to resist the sovereign purposes of God himself. And to resist civil authority is to be subjected to punishment from that authority, and finally, to resist civil authorities is to violate your conscience toward God, because we know that God has called us to do this. So. All of this has been building toward the question, well, when do we disobey or resist governing authorities? We want to face that question today. But as we do that, I want to reiterate this because it's, it's easy for us to get caught up in the resistance bit and to forget the necessity that God has placed upon us to be the best of citizens, really. As we think about 
defying governing authorities today, we need to begin here again with the understanding that there exists a biblical principle to honor and submit ourselves to governing authorities. That's a very fundamental principle in the faith. Conversely, everyone in authority has a responsibility before God to serve God's purposes in doing what is good for those under their authority. And this true, this also is true for the, the governing authorities. When it comes to them, they've been granted authority by God for the promotion of what is good in society. They are to protect the righteous. They are to punish those who do evil. They are to promote that which is good in society. They are to suppress or repress that which is wicked or evil or bad for society. And all of that is by way of review. One of the motivations that exists for submitting to governing authority, and I didn't spend much time on it a couple of weeks ago when we were last here, but it is our testimony before the world. And we need to understand this. When Peter and Paul write the things they did by the Holy Spirit about the purposes of government and the responsibilities of government, we need to understand they're not simply giving us some kind of strict standard by which we can kind of look at governing authority and evaluate governing authority and simply determine whether or not we can just blow them off. That's not the spirit in which these things come to us. That is not the heart of the believer. We are told the sphere in which government can operate. But the truth be told, no government has ever operated strictly within that sphere ever in the history of mankind in this fallen world. God is serious about our duty to subject ourselves to governing authority. And much of our testimony hangs on this. It's our light shines brightly, more brightly, because of our attitude toward the governing authorities. Our attitude should be distinct from the attitude of the world. Some Christians throughout history have sought to defang this passage or this principle by importing so many layers of qualifications that it's really rendered subjection to governing authorities is ultimately irrelevant in any meaningful sense. Whenever we bump into the word submission or subjection in the Bible, by definition, it means that someone is ranking themselves under the authority of another. There's typically a clash of desires or perspectives. I've often said that if my wife were to, to, to well, I'm going to flip this around. My wife is called by God to submit to me as her head in our marriage. If I were to command her as a loving husband to spend more time in the garden, she could submit to that, but it's not submission. You know what I mean? 
Why? Because she loves to garden. That would affirm every desire that she has. She would, would love that commandment. Most of the time, biblically, in the context of submission, submission comes in the midst of differing perspectives, differing desires, differing laws. And we, we, we can't somehow flip that thing on its head and say that what, what, what Peter and Paul really had in mind is that when the government rules exactly as we think is best according to the word of God, well, then we'll follow what they say. But if they don't, then I'm out. It requires more thought than that. And we need to be careful as we, as we think through these things. Some have tried to make the argument that if a government fails to rule strictly according to God's will and God's word, then it is not of God and therefore can be resisted and ultimately ignored. And that argument doesn't fly for a number of reasons. I mean, the first being this, that why even command Christians to submit to a godly government? Wouldn't that just be second nature? Christians would do that instinctively if they always punished evil and rewarded good according to the biblical standard. That would be a no-brainer. And again, these, these are the things that, that distinguish us from the culture around us is, is our, our sensitivity to the laws of the land, our, our willingness as much as possible to come under the authorities that God has established over us. Secondly, you consider the context in which both Paul and Peter wrote these things. Were they under a godly government? The first century was marked by political corruption and tyrannical, despotic rule. Think of what it was for Israel to be under Roman occupation. You remember a guy by the name of Herod the Great who slew all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas from two years and under in an attempt to kill the promised Messiah and king. You remember a man by the name of Herod Antipas who executed John the Baptist when John confronted him about his sin. Herod Antipas also was the one who presided over the mock trial of Jesus when Jesus was tormented and ridiculed. You remember the weak governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, who washed his hands of Jesus' murder illegitimately, had him beaten and then delivered to be crucified. You remember Herod Agrippa, who executed James and arrested Peter with the intent to do the same to him. You remember a man, infamous man by the name of Nero, who is notorious for his irrational cruelty. He had his own mother killed along with other family members. He persecuted Christians intensely. You might remember that he burnt them as torches at his dinner banquets. Nothing like a Christian to provide light by which to eat. Those things really happened. 
There's never been a human government that would be legitimate in any way if we took some sort of strict adherence to Romans 13 as the standard by which we determined finally whether or not we would obey or submit ourselves, subject ourselves to it. And so in that sense, Romans 13 is idealistic. It's the picture of what God intends. And it is the picture by which God will judge civil authorities when they face him one day. It is true and it is right that the primary task of the civil government is to promote good and to protect the righteous and to to put down evil and punish those who are wicked. But that's never really fully been recognized or realized, I should say, on earth. But that day is coming when Christ returns and sits upon his throne. There will be a day when he will rule from the throne of David with a rod of iron and righteousness will be exalted and evil will be suppressed. But until then, we we have to learn how to live under sinful government, a corrupt government, And it's under that corrupt government that Paul says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities because they are established by God. Peter also likewise says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Neither Jesus nor Peter nor Paul lived under the kind of thing that we do. They would have no no relationship to how good we have it. They they wouldn't look at government in the way that we do. We have have protections and things that our forefathers built into the fabric of of our government that that have, have, have been drawn out of the scriptures and have made for a really... Wonderful place to live, yes. We can be full of complaint, my friends. We should not be. The challenge is not somehow developing an entitled mind and heart as a Christian, thinking that things as they have been are things as they should be and will be forever in this country. Uh, We are not a Christian nation. We were founded on many biblical principles. And there are many in this country who profess Christ who have no idea what that even means. There are many in this country who will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. There's been profound benefit from the gospel and from Christianity upon the Western world. We have known and enjoyed the privileges of freedom that Peter and Paul could only have dreamt of. And if the scriptures called believers in the first century to submit to those authorities, we need to think carefully, we need to move slowly 
as we think about disobeying government ourselves, submitting ourselves to government, we should not be those itching for a fight. We need to resist that in us. That does not mean we do not acknowledge where the government is wrong. It does not mean that we we go blindly following wherever government leads and saying yes to everything that government says yes to and no to everything they oppose. No, we are not followers of Caesar. We're followers of Christ. But as followers of Christ, our attitude is not to be one of defiance fundamentally. The more the government gets corrupt, the more defiant we must be. But still, the fundamental attitude of the Christian is one of respect and honor and willing submission. So we must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That is the command of Christ. But there's another side to that coin too. And that is that we must render unto God what is God's. And I want you to hear this. Because I think it's sneaky. I think it's subtle. You may not and you must not surrender the power of your life to government. You may not, you must not surrender the authority and the power of your life to the government. And we are the proverbial frogs in the pot. And as government has encroached more and more and more and further into more tentacles, into more things, it's very easy to just come to a point of assuming that they have a right to dictate what they dictate and to forbid what they forbid. And we need to be very careful That is man's nature, to want a king. You remember Israel wanted a king. They didn't want God as their king. They wanted a man. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a guy they could see and a guy they could follow. It is our nature to want to be ruled. And you say, wait a minute. Not mine. It's interesting. Paul asks that question in a completely different context, but in, in, in Galatians chapters four and five, uh, maybe it's in three. Uh, you'll find it. He just asks this question Tell me, you who want to be under law. And you say, Wait a minute. Who, who wants to be under law? Well, you see, there's. There's something about living under the the stricture of of some sort of law that's been foisted upon you and and therefore I can be kind of infantile in my thinking and feel secure in in the boundaries that someone has placed around me. Paul says in Galatians, I do know this one, 5, 1, and 2, where he, he says, look, it was for freedom that you were set free. Therefore, stand firm, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 
We're no longer under the Mosaic administration, says Paul. I want you to live free in Christ. It's true politically as well. We want to be ruled. We want to be provided for. We want to be protected. Beloved, who is it who is your provider? Who is it who is your protector? Freedom requires responsibility. And to live as Christ would have you to live in this world means that you must, at some level, that doesn't mean you don't consider others, but you live acknowledging that there is an audience of one. And you need to be mindful of what he has called you to. You have to be engaged in that work. Part of which is figuring out how I'm going to live before governing authorities and all the other authorities that God has placed in my life. And for this morning's purposes, here's, here's, here's the point. We, we're not to be statists. Christians cannot believe that the authority of the civil government is somehow absolute and limitless. There is a danger to statism, to coming under the the spell of the government, to look at the state as one only should look at God. It is to fear man more than God. It is to fear temporal punishment more than eternal consequences. When Luther said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, he wasn't kidding. Those are the things he faced. And those are the things that the church has always faced. And those are the things from which we have largely been shielded to this point, but what if? What if? Are you wrestling with the question, if faithfulness to Christ meant death, though I married, though I have children, though I have grandchildren, would I stand faithful before the Lord unto death? If you're not asking those questions, you should be. People who don't ask those questions will not stand. You've got to ask. You've got to wrestle with these things before they come to us. One author writes this, quote, the state is not God. The state's authority is not limited. They do not get to do whatever just seems good to them. Men should not give unlimited obedience to civil government. In fact, men have a duty to oppose any in authority when they make unjust or immoral laws, end quote. That's a good statement. 
We cannot reflexively or slavishly just bow before governing authorities. Christ alone is Lord. He alone is our Savior, not government. He is our teacher, not government. He is our provider. He is our hope. He alone is sovereign. And we owe our allegiance finally and fully to him. We only subject ourselves to governing and earthly authorities, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, because he's called us to. And so our submission to those authorities ultimately is a submission to him. Every one of us has responsibility to live before the Lord, and we cannot look to Caesar as though he dictates us or is our deliverer, you understand that, that, that to look at the government that way is nothing short of idolatry. That is the place that Christ alone has in our lives. So we must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, yes, but we must also render unto God what is God's. And there will be times when faithfulness to the Lord will mean defiance of the state. Whenever Caesar arrogantly assumes some position, some status, some authority that God has not given him, then the government may be, and in some cases must be, disobeyed. And this morning what I want to do is just give you six occasions where you have divine sanction to resist governing authorities. Six occasions when you have divine sanction to resist governing authorities. And we're going to divide them up into two groups of three. Three of them define times when you have a God-sanctioned duty to disobey. Occasions when you must defy governing authorities. And the other three are occasions where you have the right to defy governing authorities, circumstances when you may or may not choose to resist the government. So here we go. When is defiance of governing authority a duty? When does faithfulness demand defiance? Number one, when the civil magistrate commands what is wrong. When the governing authorities command you to do what is wrong, you must resist. You must disobey. Here's Francis Schaeffer, quote, The civil government, as all of life, stands under the law of God. In this fallen world, God has given us certain offices to protect us from the chaos, which is the natural result of that fallenness. But... When any office commands what is contrary to the law of God, those who hold that office abrogate their authority and they are not to be obeyed, and that includes the state, end quote. That's very clear. God's law trumps man's law every time. And again, you've got to determine this in advance. Christ is your Lord. You will obey him first and foremost. And there are all kinds of biblical examples of this, right? We've seen the Hebrew midwives. Exodus 1 tells us that they, 
they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded. You remember the king had commanded the, the murder of the Hebrew children, male children. We read of Moses' parents who did not fear the king's edict but kept their son hidden until they could hide him no longer and you know the rest of the story. Rahab, who was ordered to give up the Israeli spies, she defied that order and she too feared the king. You remember King Saul who wickedly commanded his servants to kill the priests of the Lord and they refused to do it. That's 1 Samuel 22. We've made reference a number of times to those three heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's idol in violation of the second commandment. You remember Herod ordered the Magi to report back to him about the whereabouts of King Jesus, which they did not do. And there will be a day for those alive at the time of the tribulation who will be ordered by the authorities to take the mark of the beast. It'll be required for everyone to buy or to sell in that day, and true believers will refuse to do it. There are plenty of examples also in the annals of church history of people who refused to do what God considered evil even though it cost them dearly. You might be familiar with the name Polycarp. I don't know if anybody's interested in naming their child that. It, it means many fish. <laughs> Polycarp is a, is a hero. He was actually a follower of the apostle John. When he was commanded by Caesar to renounce Christ, he famously said, quote, 80 and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then, I, how then could I blaspheme my Savior and my King? And with that, Polycarp went to his death. There's a woman, one of the earliest recorded in church history by the name of Blandina, who was a slave girl in southern France, and she would not renounce her faith, and she went, underwent horrible torture for her faith in Christ. She would not declare her allegiance to foreign gods. And while she was being tortured, historians tell us that over and over and over again, she just kept saying, I am a Christian and I commit no wrongdoing. She testified to the uprightness of her life and the grace of God and she too eventually suffered a horrible death. John Huss, when asked when, whether he was prepared to obey the Pope's commands, said, quote, yes, as far as they agree with the doctrine of Christ. But when I see the contrary, I will not obey, even though you burn my body. And burn his body they did. And that's exactly right. We refuse any and every authority when they bid us to do what God has forbidden us to do. There's a second time when it is necessary to disobey the governing authorities, and that is 
when the civil magistrate forbids us from doing what is right, when they command us to do what is wrong and when they forbid us to do what is right, when you're forbidden to obey God's commands, when you're ordered to stop doing what's right and good, you've got to keep right on going. And that is exactly what Peter and the apostles did, right in Acts 4 and 5. They were forbidden to proclaim the gospel three times, and three times they went right back to doing it. Daniel, you remember, was commanded to stop praying to his God. And what did he do but fling open the drapes, kneel three times a day where all could see, and he continued right on his knees praying. Church history, again, would tell us of men like John Bunyan, whom we talked about, who spent 12 years in a Bedford jail apart from his family and his flock because of his unwillingness to to preach what the authorities commanded him to preach. William Tyndale, who fled from country to country in Western Europe, seeking to evade the authorities from England who who were dogging him, trying to catch him. Ultimately, they caught him, and they killed him. And what was his crime? Do you know? Just look in your lap at that English Bible. I don't remember exactly how many translations remain of Tyndale's Bible. But I had an opportunity to see one one time and it was bloodstained. Friends, that Bible in your lap is a gift of God. But it did not come to you easily or without profound cost. There's a young mother in France, 22 years old, still nursing her son, caring also for her aged father. She let goods and kindred go. She knew what it was to love Christ more than mother and father, more than her own child. And she sealed her testimony with her blood. Her name was Perpetua. She would not confess Caesar as Lord. She was commanded to let go of the good profession and to embrace a wicked one. And she says, I'm going to cling to what is good and right. And there are hosts of others, faithful men and women throughout the history of the church who persevered in good in spite of the king's edict. Not many, I suppose, Not many of us will ever make the history books, but I do wonder, don't you? 
whether your life will hold up in the heat of the day. I pray mine will. I pray yours will. There's a third time, I think, when, when we need to, to resist the civil authority, and it, it is this, that when the, the, when the civil magistrate demands passivity in the face of evil, in other words, when, when Christians are ordered to stand down when they should be standing up in exposing wickedness, we must stand. When we're told we're not to protest evil, either in our deeds or in our words, you have to understand that we have a call to expose evil. That is the express call of Scripture. In fact, you can turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. You know Philippians 2 tells us that we are set in this dark world as lights. Jesus himself called us the light of the world, a city set on the hill that could not be hidden, and he has commanded us to let our light shine. If you look at Ephesians 5, Verse 1, we're to be imitators of God as beloved children. We're to walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. And there are all kinds of things that he lists here that are not to be named among us. We're not to be like the world. He says, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Get, what's, what's the flip side of a son of disobedience? What are we? We are sons and daughters of obedience. That's, that's how we're known. That's what we're characterized by. And he says, look, don't be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, not just that you were in it, but you were dark. But now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, what? Walk as children of light. For the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Those are the things that are to characterize our lives. And he says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord and do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but what? But instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful to speak of the things that are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. This is part of our responsibility as followers of Christ, that we would live lives that don't participate in things that are evil, but instead seek to live in the light and live in goodness and to live in in truth, and to live in ways that are like our Lord, that honor him. Your lifestyle is one of the ways that you shine, but another way that you shine is by the things that you speak. And our lips and our lives are to confront this dark world. And so we have all kinds of examples again in the Bible of just this kind of thing. Nathan, you remember, confronted King David about his adultery and his murder of Uriah. 
You remember John the Baptist publicly rebuked Herod for his illicit marriage to his brother's wife. We too have a task of calling the authorities above us to to honor the Lord in, in their leadership, in their rule. And we can do this at the ballot box. We can do this directly as one prominent pastor did recently in writing to Governor Newsom a letter rebuking his blasphemous use of scripture to try and invite people from other states into this state so that they could have an abortion. And he did it all under the, under the auspices of that's demonstrating love for your neighbor. We can do it by publicly speaking out against what is evil. Sometimes we just shake our head and we keep our mouth closed and maybe we ought to open our mouths more often. Humbly, gently, with reverence. But are we, or not, are we not commanded to have speech that is salty? We are. It should have a preserving impact. Our speech should, should, should speak the truth. And we need to stand for what is right and what is good and what is true. Many of us, and I think perhaps most, I certainly would include myself, are too quiet in the face of evil. We talk amongst ourselves. We're great analysts in that sense. Among those who agree with us. But we're not so bold around the dinner table at Thanksgiving or in the public square. And and we need to think about that. You start declaring the truth about the child in the womb. You start declaring the truth about homosexuality or transgenderism. You start declaring the truth about a parent's right to parent their children. You start talking about the biblical truth in the public square. And you know, you know it's going to get hard and it's going to get hot. And at the very least, you're going to be rejected as a fool And you may just get slugged. You may just go to jail. And brothers and sisters, may God help us if we shrink back from that kind of thing because we just love our cushy lives and we don't want to be not liked. And we we just cling to our house in such a way that we're afraid we're going to lose all this stuff. Friends, that's disloyalty to Christ. I'm not saying you're called to be an agitator for Jesus. I'm just saying that we're called to to live out loud and to to speak the truth and to live the truth and and not to to sort of hunker down with our families in our own little four walls and, and only dwell in places where we're accepted and approved. We need to be engaging a culture that is wayward and in need of Christ. And sometimes suffering is the way to that community. Oftentimes, suffering is the way to seeing the gospel come with weight and force. 
Well, we need to keep moving. So when do you have a duty to disobey government? When the civil magistrate commands what is wrong, when they forbid what is right, and when they demand that you sit passively by in the face of evil. But there are also times in this world when for the sake of love and the gospel and conscience, we must choose either to resist or to comply. You do have a choice in some circumstances with government dictates. So when, when is defiance of government authority not required? When is it permissible to make a decision one way or the other to comply or to resist? Number one, we'll just start our list over. Number one, when the civil magistrate demands that you surrender your freedom for doing what is right. In other words, when the authorities come knocking on your door without cause, and you have an opportunity to flee, you have freedom to do that. Peter's clear, isn't he? In 1 Peter 4.15, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a, or a troublesome meddler. And I was thinking this morning, I don't even know what that means. I think I have a feeling about what that means. But anyway, I looked it up. It means to be an agitator or a troublemaker or a rabble rouser. Don't do that. That's not what Christ wants from your life. But when you do what is right and you suffer for it, this finds favor with God, and that ought to be our aim. That's what's driving us. And when we do what is right and the government comes for us, we have freedom to either choose to comply with the arrest or if we have ability, we can get out, get out of Dodge, move to Texas. No, I don't know, wherever. You get the idea. Sometimes, biblically, Christians complied willingly when faced with arrest. Jesus could have delivered himself out of every situation if he wanted to. But the Father had called him to a particular hour and a particular time, and when that time came, Jesus submitted himself to the soldiers who came to arrest him. Acts 5, the apostles, again, after defying the orders of the Sanhedrin, they, 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 they could have, as we said, called the crowd perhaps to provide them with protection. They could have simply disobeyed the Lord and, and gone on doing something else, somewhere else. But they didn't. And they went willingly, and they went to jail, and they went to 39 lashes, didn't they? Paul went up to Jerusalem. You remember when, he was, when it was prophesied that, that he would be arrested if he went there. He went there knowing full well that it was going to mean his capture and arrest. So there are times when Christians comply willingly and, and undergo arrest. But there are other times when believers have sought to flee persecution or to seek or sought protection from persecution. For example, look over, flip over to Acts chapter 8. One of the things that God does in persecution is he spreads the church. 
so that the gospel gets spread. Acts 8, verse 1. This is right on the heels of the stoning of Stephen. And we meet a man here by the name of Saul. You know who he is, later to become the Apostle Paul. Chapter 8, verse 1, now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Note this, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some stayed, others fled, and God used it. Some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him, and Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he was delivering them into prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about what? Proclaiming the good news of the word. So God uses people when they flee from persecution. You remember Paul was... Uh, uh, let down by a, by a basket through the wall in order to avoid uh, those who were seeking his life. Acts 16, when Paul was asked to leave by the magistrates in Philippi, he refused and he appealed instead to his rights as a Roman citizen, therefore avoiding the persecution that was coming to him. So don't think that because you're a faithful believer that somehow you've got to sit and endure this and necessarily go to, the, go to the stake. That might be what God has called you to. It may not be. It's not always easy to know what to do in these circumstances, and we need to be careful about making uh, patent judgments about people who uh, take, take, take the first trip to Tennessee where, where these kinds of things are, are not going to happen to me. As long as you don't go, I'm all right with it. John Knox. Knox fled England under the brutal persecution of Bloody Mary. And many others stayed. Names like John Bradford, John Rogers, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cranmer, and in doing so, he preserved his life, but he struggled mightily with guilt. He wrote this, quote, I have in the beginning of this battle appeared to play the faint-hearted and feeble soldier. Yet my prayer is that I may be restored to the battle again. Do you see that? Do you understand what he's saying? I can't help but think in leaving my brethren in England to suffer under, under that kind of tyranny that I haven't proven to be feeble and faithless. But his heart's desire was what? Coach, put me in the game. I want to go back into the game. And lo and behold, the Lord used him mightily. He became one of the brightest lights for Christ in all of Scotland and England. So who's to say whether Cranmer was right in giving his life or Knox was right in giving his life a living sacrifice? And that's just the point. We're not called on every occasion to remain and endure the fires of persecution in every instance. And I think there's a lot of things to be considered that are beyond 
uh, the scope of this message, but it is good to think about. Ask yourself those questions. Under what circumstances would I flee? I know it's hard with hypotheticals, but you should be thinking about it. When would I stay? Why would I suffer? What's the value of it? What impact does it have? What does it say about Christ? But whether you choose to stay or you choose to flee, the point's the same, that your life is a living sacrifice given unto Christ to dispose of as he pleases and just pray that he would give you grace to know what to do at the right time. So there's biblical warrant for fleeing persecution. Secondly, when the civil magistrate is outside of its God-given limitations, you have a choice. When the civil magistrate is outside of its God-given limitations, listen, we're to, sur- we're to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but what happens if we render unto Caesar what belongs to God? God has given you a measure of authority in life. You're responsible for yourself and for those under your care. And you cannot simply give over to Caesar those things that God has given to you. Otherwise, again, you're practicing idolatry. Think of it. Pastors are called to shepherd the flock of God. What would that be if we as the pastors of this church just bowed before every dictate that Caesar ever made? He calls for the doors to be shut. We say, yes, sir. He calls for, for preaching to be soft and friendly and never to mention those, those, those concepts that might have to do with racism or LGBTQ concerns or whatever. Are, are we going to make the gospel? We can't mention the word sin. Caesar said so. I don't know how often you think about it, but I think about it quite a bit. I'm pretty convinced there's a lot of things. I mean, if, 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 if we had a bigger following on YouTube that could really get us in trouble, or me, or Charles, or whoever. <laughs> Praise God. And I got a big pulpit. I just, yeah, anyway. If pastors relegate their divine commission to rule in the church for the good of the flock, if we give that authority to the state, we are being unfaithful to God's call. Parents are responsible for the Christ-centered rearing of their children. If those children... If those with children, I should say, render to Caesar the authority that belongs to them as parents, then you're dishonoring Christ and you're abdicating your responsibility again before him for your children. If you're a parent in a school where all the nonsense that's going on in so many school boards, listen, you have an obligation to make the biblical standard known. Don't endure, don't endure 
a school board that says our hands are tied. We just have to do whatever the, whatever the federal authorities, whatever the state authorities say, whatever the union passes down to us. Go to the meeting and say, no, you don't. In fact, you have a responsibility before God to oppose those things because God opposes those things. They will laugh you out of that room, but you've stood for truth. Governor Newsom is not your parent. He is not your doctor. He is not responsible to educate your children. He does not get to tell us whether we attend church or whether we gather. The state is only too willing to assume that your children belong to them. You're raising them as a proxy for them. I saw it personally as a public school teacher. I could feel it even then. This is 30 years ago. But the assumption on the part of some teachers that somehow they knew better. They're well-meaning, beloved, but you cannot let them have their way with your kids. We could spend the rest of the day talking through test cases of the various things that are going on in your head and those are worth talking about. I hope you'll talk about them around your lunch table and with one another because they're worth thinking through in advance. We can't obviously do that, but there are things that you should be and you need to be working through yourself. Let's get to our third time when you might, when you have a choice. And that is this, when the civil magistrates are in conflict with one another, and this became glaringly clear during COVID. We find ourselves all the time, right? We live under multiple authorities. You as parents have known the tension of this when your child asks dad something and gets a negative answer to which they hoped would be positive and therefore they find mom. And they hope that the two of you will never, never communicate about this very thing. You see, biblically, listen, we are permitted to seek protection from the governing authorities that are most sympathetic to our cause. Now, I'll leave it with you to wrestle with that and to think through it. But you are permitted to seek protection from the governing authority by appealing to that authority that that is most sympathetic to our cause. And by that I don't mean my whims. But our cause is the cause of Christ. And so we, we saw this, didn't we? That, that during COVID, California came in with some mandates about the church and we kept our eyes fixed on Placer County. <laughs> because Placer County was much more sympathetic to our cause. There were some men, one Sunday when we were meeting here and and the governor had not given his okay yet, a, a sheriff came into the parking lot and some men went out and met him and met even that authority, the individual officer himself, to appeal to him not to break up this thing. 
He wasn't even here for that reason. But, but I thought it was great. Esther would be an example of this kind of thing from the Old Testament who appealed to the king at the risk of her life when Haman, the lesser authority, wanted to destroy the Jewish people. Paul, in Acts 25, appealed to Caesar in order to evade the false accusation and the death threats of the Jewish leadership. The reformers made these kinds of appeals, finding protection from popes and kings who were out of control by by appealing to the lesser magistrates. Martin Luther was protected by Prince Frederick III of Saxony. John Calvin was protected by the Geneva City Council. So you can wrestle with that. But if you find that mom and dad are divided in opinion, you, you, you can go to either one. You know what I mean? Governmentally speaking. And let them work out the details of who's right. Let me close then with just three, what I believe to be really important questions. As I said some weeks back, it's, it's very tempting to become a tumultuous spirit. Those were Calvin's words. You remember that? always agitated, always stirred up, always feeling like until every, every governing authority bows the knee to Christ that somehow I just can't be at rest. We're not to be tumultuous spirits. And so these questions matter. Number one, why am I resisting civil authorities? That's a good question to ask because a lot's at stake. Your testimony might be at stake. Your freedom might be at stake. Your life might be at stake. The reputation of Christ might be at stake. Think of those who foolishly have murdered people in the name of protecting the unborn. Blow up an abortion clinic and you're going to make life tough for the rest of the church. A lot's at stake, brother, sister, in the way that you go about this. So you need to be thinking, why am I doing this? What am I being driven by? Is it love for God? Love for neighbor? Is it the testimony of Christ? Is it the promotion of the truth? Or is it just that tumultuous spirit that somehow wants to make a stand for Jesus when we feel like this culture is just kind of bland for things like that. We should not be of that mindset that just says, you know, I just want to stick it to the man. We're not at war with the authorities that God has established. We need to have a good conscience and a good testimony, and therefore I need to resist for the right reasons. So why am I resisting civil authorities? Secondly, What is my disposition in defiance? Am I being Christ-like when I defy, or am I being fleshly? What is the fruit of the Spirit? 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, are those the things that governing authorities are seeing in me as I oppose them? Or are the veins in my neck and the color of my complexion instead expressing something different like enmity, strife, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, I want my will, factions and dissensions? See, that was not the apostles in Acts 5. They joyfully accepted the consequences of their defiance. They rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name They were not cursing the authorities under their breath. They were preaching the gospel to them. Third question. Am I ready? In the language of Peter, Peter, am I armed to suffer as a Christian for righteousness' sake, for doing good? Am I ready to endure well the unjust suffering that will come my way if I live a godly life? And this can't be said enough. Even when we defy the civil authorities, we do that with a submissive attitude, with a Christ-like character. We are not violent. We're not full of vengeance. We're not full of anger. We are like Christ. We are like his apostles. We suffer and we realize that oftentimes the price of that rebellion or that, I shouldn't put it in that language, I guess, that that defiance of a tyrannical authority, oftentimes the price, we punch our ticket and that ticket is to suffer. So when we choose to defy the authorities, we understand we are choosing suffering and we are choosing to suffer with joy. You do what is right in this life. You obey God. If you are consistent in your testimony by the way you live and the things you speak, you will suffer. You will suffer persecution. It may fundamentally be rejection of other people, but there is no way around this, for there will be persecution for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. In 1 Thess 3.3, Paul says, you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. Destined for what? To suffer. 1 Peter 1.21, Christ left you an example to follow in his footsteps, who while suffering, uttered no threats. Jesus told his disciples time and again that tribulations and persecutions would accompany them all through their ministries. And we find them in Acts 14, the apostles themselves reminding the brethren, the apostles coming into church and telling them, just like I'm telling you, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Beloved, this may stick in your craw a bit, but I'm going to put it there anyway. Can we in any way presume ourselves to be part of the kingdom of God if over the course of our lives we have never known any suffering ever? And again, I'm including rejection by family and friends and the lady at the market who you talk to about Jesus. 
I'm not saying that you, you have to spill your blood on behalf of Jesus, but if there has never been any cost to your faith, you need to think through the reality of your faith. My prayer is that God would help us to live wisely in this world, that he would strengthen our testimony as we live well in a world that's opposed to his rule and authority. I want to take you very quickly just back to the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to wrap all this up because Peter sums it up so nicely. He really does draw it all together. Chapter 1, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, what? That even now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? Because it proves forth our faith. So that the proof of your faith, verse 7, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Turn over to chapter 2. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. And it is in that context, note this, verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing good you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Do you see that our testimony before men is dependent upon and, in, and, and brightened by our ability to wisely engage with the authorities over us. Verse 16, act as free people, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as slaves of God. Chapter 3, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear, having a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing good rather than doing wrong. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you're sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame but is to glorify God in this name. Did you know that the, the word Christian, the name Christian, was a, was a despised and disparaged terminology? It was a, it was a moniker of, of, of humility. And he says, you know what? If you're mocked by this world, 
because you live as a Christian, because you speak as a Christian? Oh, don't be ashamed, my friend. No, you are to glorify God in this name. Look down at chapter 5. Verse 10. Well, we'll start in 9. But resist him, that is the devil. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, you see how how common that is to the, the, the Christian experience. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are our great hope, our strength, our rock of refuge. We give you praise and honor and glory for all authority is yours. And Lord, you are wise and good and you have granted authority according to your perfect will. And we ask, Lord, for help. You have created us for such a time as this. You have appointed our days. And Lord, you have placed us here and you have placed us now and we want to be faithful to you. Help us in the discharge of the authorities that you have granted to us and help us to be wise as we seek to walk under the authorities that you've given to us. Lord, we want to honor you in every way. We want Christ to be exalted. Help us to live lives that are worthy of our calling. And Lord, set loose our tongues that we might testify of the glory of our King. Thank you for your faithfulness, for the fact that you will never, ever forsake us that, Lord, you appoint every trial, you set the boundaries and the limitations of it. We will never fail, for you are our God and you uphold us. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.